Everybody, thank you for joining us this week. Joseph Scrimshaw is with me. Thank you for being here. Absolutely. Can I just point out very quickly that your last name is one of my favorite words of all time, so I'm very excited to have awesome. you here. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a good name. I love and you name. know you know what, it, what Scrimshaw is and I, everything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I've never heard of anybody having it as a last name. Awesome. That kind of surprised me. Yeah, but, I'm, I'm very happy with it because it's a good comedy name. Mm-hmm. 100%. So you wanted to pick something highly unusual. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, and it's one specific, which is good. You picked one specific track because if you'd have picked the whole album... People would be a little confused. I think so. Uh, Sinatra Live at the Sands, mm-hmm. uh, which came out what year? 1966. 1966. Okay. So when did you first... We'll talk about why you picked it, but when did you first hear it? Uh, I probably... I think I first heard it uh, my like my first year of college. Okay. Uh, so I had been really amused by Sinatra via Phil Hartman's impression of him. Oh, That awesome. was like one of my favorite Saturday Night Live bits. <laughs> uh, and so I got into... Sinatra in a sort of proto-hipster ironic way mm-hmm. of finding a couple of his albums uh, in the era where he was talking a little bit more like Hartman impersonates yeah, 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 yeah. him. Uh, and then over time I came to really appreciate Sinatra unironically yeah. uh, and learn a lot about that era and kind of how he fits into the history of music, the history of America, and in some ways the history of comedy. Right. Yeah, that's, that's, see that's interesting and I, had, I would never have, have pegged anybody to pick Sinatra or any kind of like maybe Dean Martin you yes. think that somebody might because he really sort of bordered on comedian yeah I mean he's Mar- Dean yeah. Martin is some of the best comic delivery of any absolutely. human who has ever been recorded absolutely yeah um, and so there's there's a bit on here called what's it called again the, the tea break the tea break thank you okay and it's about 12 minutes long yep and it's it's a mix of a lot of different things. Yeah, there's a lot going on in it. Yeah, uh, I mean, speaking of being ironic, he's kind of play like doing some like making fun of comedic stuff at the beginning. Like he's got like some kind of Catskill stuff going. Yeah, on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for him, that at that point, that was sort of like um, that was like doing the classics mm-hmm. because he was fans of all of the actual vaudeville and right. Catskills people. So for him, it was this indulgence of like. This is my show packed with 300 people who mm. absolutely love me, and I can kind of get away with anything. Mm-hmm. So I'll do an impression of an obscure comedian named Joey Lewis. Right, right. Who was not obscure at the time. Right, right, but, right. Uh, but is now. And yeah. It's largely forgotten. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so there's a lot of that Catskills sort of Yiddish thing. Yeah. Um, and Sinatra had actually grown up uh, in a very mixed neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So in a lot, you know, he gets uh, treated very Italian. There's a lot about him that's right. very Italian. right. But he also had a lot of relationship to sort of the uh, secular parts of Jewish culture. Mm-hmm. So that sort of Yiddish accent that he mm-hmm. likes to strangely do uh, is, you know, part of partially just him enjoying his childhood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, all right, so you picked this album up. And were you picking it up? Were you picking it up because of sort of, of the impression? Were you what were you looking for then when you picked the album up? Like I'm, I'm curious. Like when you first got it, you just wanted some music, or were you curious about who the guy was to hear if there was this kind of stuff? I had answer? picked up a the album that I think comes uh, that he recorded right after uh, mm-hmm. Sinatra at the Sands, which is Strangers in the Night. Okay, uh, which is a really weird album because it has the very odd Strangers in the Night. Mm-hmm. A song on it, which was very different than what he was doing at the time, but sure. was a big hit and had the doobie doobie doo at the end, which <laughs> yes. is yes. like just that phrase of that sort of bad <laughs> scatting of like you know scatting should be soft and light, and right. Sinatra comes at it with a hammer, right? <laughs> and like doobie doobie, <laughs> and like that is the heart of what like Hartman's mm-hmm. impression was. So I bought that just because I had been getting into vinyl, and I thought ah this will be mm-hmm. this will be fun. I bought In Utro and Strangers in the Night <laughs> <laughs> at the same time on vinyl. Uh, and that album 
has that is the title track, which is Sinatra kind of trying to be hip with the kids. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the album is just like, as I kept listening to it, it was like, oh, this is actually like good music. I like uh-huh. this. Yeah. Uh, and so by the time I, I picked up Sinatra at the Sands, I thought I might like the music, but I'm mostly getting it because my friends told me he has this 12 minute okay. monologue. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, at the time I enjoyed it on sort of a, a meta level. Mm-hmm. And then over time I got to understand, like, what are some of these references he's making right. that I have no idea what they are? Mm-hmm. And, and now I kind of appreciate it from both perspectives. That's kind of awesome because a lot of, a lot of the digging when it comes to comedy tends to be, you know, maybe who wrote the liner notes on the back of the album or something or who mentions them in another. But, but here it's specifically this one guy who's not a comedian specifically talking about comedians he knew you know, or yeah. was familiar with. Were you, okay, so at the time, were you a comic already? Uh, yeah, I was okay. just starting to do sketch comedy. Okay. Um, so I was also not coming at it as a, like, a huge lover of stand-up. I had seen, uh, I was living in Minneapolis at the time, mm-hmm. and I had seen a couple of really bad Seinfeld impressions. Ah. Uh, <laughs> and it really soured me on mm-hmm. stand-up. And I was getting a liberal arts degree, and also the, just kind of that, that stand-up, uh, didn't have as much sort of structure yeah. to it. Uh, you know, I kind of had a stick in my ass about stand-up at okay. the time. Okay. So I also credit uh, this Snatcher at the Sands to listening to how fun it is to just be yourself yeah, yeah, yeah. and just talk about yourself in front of an audience and get that yeah. much humor out of it. Because I was doing sketch comedy, but I was getting a little frustrated of always kind of having the fourth wall totally up. For sure. And For sure. always being someone else instead of just talking to an audience. So yeah. that was another thing that I sort of gravitated to about that track and why I was fascinated with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because he's got had nothing to lose. He's Frank Sinatra. Yeah. So he can do what he wants, whether stuff, uh, you know, I mean, most of it's going to fly because he's Frank, but there's some genuinely funny stuff in there yeah. that he gets to play with, and I can see that feeling sort of yeah. freeing. You're like, holy shit, this guy doesn't have to worry about anything. And it's cool uh, to see in context because uh, a couple years after this came out, uh, a lot of the Rat Pack recordings were actually made available. Because mm-hmm. they had recorded a bunch of them, mm-hmm. but they were too blue. That right. They just couldn't... Right. The, the record... Even the record label that Frank owned was like, uh, don't, Frank, I know you can do whatever you want, but don't release this thing where you're acknowledging that there are gangsters sleeping upstairs. Oh, right, right. Uh, but the the context of it is really interesting because he's with Dean Martin, he's with Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, Sammy Davis Jr. is is great, and Dean Martin is, uh, when he is relaxed and in control, I think one of the funniest humans on the planet. Yeah. So Frank is trying to keep up with Dean, and he can't. Right. Uh, so it's cool then to hear him around the same era by himself, and he, he's also doing a little bit of a Dean impression. Like, yeah, they share yeah. jokes a lot, but he's also, he's by himself, so he can really uh, take his own time with his delivery, mm-hmm. instead of trying really hard to get one off in the middle of Dean doing a bit. Sure, sure. So it was also kind of comparing those, it was also kind of a lesson to, like, well, what are the rhythms of multiple people mm-hmm. talking on stage, and what are the rhythms when it's just one person and the audience doing a sort of duet in terms of the rhythm. That's a really good point, because uh, the delivery of these two guys, obviously being different men, and but their music is, you know, similar enough that they're always going to be lumped together. Yeah. But yeah, rhythmically, they're so different. I haven't thought of that, because I don't think of them in terms of comedy, despite Jerry being Dean Martin being with Jerry and having yeah. his own variety show. I still, in my head, he's still a musician as much as he, he ought to be a comedian. And then Frank Sinatra, I think of if I think of him in terms of drama or entertainment outside of music, I think of him as a dramatic actor. Yes. You know? Yeah. So it is very odd. 
Yeah, um, and I don't think he is. I don't think he is a super gifted comedian. Sure. He kind of comes at comedy the same way he came out at Doobie Doobie Doo. Yeah, with like with all of these sort of like lightness and intelligence that he he brought to so many of his songs that mm-hmm. make him so popular as a musician. Um, he he comes at comedy kind of with a hammer. Yeah, but for some reason it really works on mm-hmm. this album. Was there something that struck you first when you heard it, like one particular bit of it, or was it just the whole thing as a? Uh, there were some some of the kind of meta moments at the time of like, why is he talking in a Yiddish accent? What the hell is that about? That was sort of meta funny okay. to me. Uh, but as I as I see it in context, some of the things I appreciate is that level of honesty, mm-hmm. uh, sort of being able to talk about his career and being honest about some of the people in his past. Yeah, like there's a bit about the first show that he was on that was a radio show where he got to. Uh, audition as an amateur guy and just being honest that that guy was a drunk yeah so i think this is in an era of that's what was so special to the audience of everything we didn't know anywhere near as much about entertainers yeah what we did it was from gossip columnists it wasn't from their actual lips Mm -hmm. so to have a recording of 300 people in the room with the biggest most important star in the world or Mm -hmm. one of them certainly and have him just be super honest about, like, yeah, that guy who gave me my big break, he was a drunk. <laughs> and just this sort of, like, right. brutal, hammering honesty of that. And also, you can just kind of hear Sinatra enjoying it. Of, like, yeah. I don't have to hide anything. That guy was a drunk. Right. <laughs> and you know what? Honestly, the, the bit about his dad is a solid bit. It's, like, just a perfectly solid bit. Like, where he talks about how his dad was a... What did he say? He was an English uh, professor yeah. to that effect, and then he just pulls out his full-on Jersey accent. Yeah, what do just... you want to learn? Nothing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah there's yeah, a lot of a good bit. It's... Yeah, there's a lot of just solid setup, knockdown jokes mm-hmm. that are delivered well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's yeah, I think some honesty. And then toward the end, when he is talking about thanking people for following his career mm-hmm. and talking about his fiftieth birthday. It, that is well delivered to be, it's not schmaltzy, mm. but compared to the rest of it, it's sort of like, this is honesty. This is a 50-year-old dude yeah. reflecting. Nothing to it, folks. Good evening. Salud. Chin <laughs> down. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Jilly's West. Where the elite meet to eat. And if I rhyme that, this will be a barn in the morning. (laughs) I hope that you're having an enjoyable stay here in Las Vegas and also hope that you have been fortunate. I do wish that for you. I can't say the same for Mr. Basie and myself because we run into a streak of bad luck. (laughs) Sunday, we went up to the Grand Canyon and it was closed. And last year, we invested a bundle of money in a pumpkin farm, and then they called off Halloween. It's, it's track nine out of how many? Do you know off the top of your head? I, uh, I think like 20-ish. Okay. Uh, it's Shit, it's yeah. two two records on vinyl. Okay, it's two. Okay. Yeah. Um, what do you think? He didn't have to include that. Yeah. What do you think his reasoning for leaving that on there is? I think that he wanted to give the... Uh, the listening audience, the experience mm-hmm. of hearing what the nightclub show really 
truly was. Yeah. That and that was part sense. of the idea of this tour is he had recorded live things and he'd been frustrated that they'd never worked. He mm-hmm. recorded a bunch of Rat Pack stuff and this was a long engagement at the Sands for his 50th birthday yeah. with Count Basie. So it was like right. really, yeah. really in the sort of music world and jazz world, really, really respectable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think he just recorded this shit out of a long run so he knew he could get something really, really good. Yeah. And I think that the response from the audience is strong. Yeah. Uh, so that he can uh, share this perspective, mm-hmm. you know? It's hard to think of what the modern equivalent of it would be yeah, since we know, know. Mm-hmm. so much about... I think maybe maybe following a celebrity you like on Twitter yeah. and hearing them be really, really human right. is about the closest equivalent. This is sort of like the only way you could hear Sinatra on Twitter. Right. Like, what did he really think? Like, mm-hmm. well... Uh, I, I feel pretty good about 50. I feel like I'm 28 on the inside, mm-hmm. which is the only thing that he really said. And this guy was a drunk. Right. And here's a mean joke about my friend Dean Martin. <laughs> and here's a mean joke about my friend Sammy Davis. Oh, yeah. Oh, so God. it is. It's sort of, uh, yeah, it's sort of Sinatra on Twitter. There's a, And there's also some typical, like, the, the stuff that people always like to poke at him about, which is his, like, sort of thinly veiled racism. I mean, well, the I, jokes anyway. You know? yeah, well, I was hoping you were going to bring that up. Because yeah. that's another thing of context of at the time, mm-hmm. it, it, I understood him via the uh, Phil Hartman impression. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, in, and I love that impression and I think it's fair, but I, it is sad to me that history has totally inverted the truth of Sinatra's uh-huh. uh, racism. Right. So, in, in that's crystal clear if you really listen to the Rat Pack albums. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know how much you know about Sinatra. A little bit. So Sinatra was staunch, staunch Democratic mm-hmm. person. Yeah. Fought tooth and nail for equality and for rights. Mm-hmm. Sammy Davis Jr. would not have a career if he hadn't met Frank. Mm-hmm. And Frank gave him his career because he thought he was really talented. Right. Uh, Frank fought with nightclubs that would not allow black entertainers to perform. Mm-hmm. Fought with hotels that would ask black entertainers to perform but not allow them to stay at the hotel. Right. He fought tooth and nail in the Rat Pack era as, uh, you know, he was championing uh, JFK, who was also, you know, liberal and and forward-thinking in his policies, they made all these jokes taking on the voice of the racists that they were making fun of. Mm -hmm. But as sort of, uh, I think, uh, baby boomers were tuning into Sinatra, Mm -hmm. they didn't have any of that context of, of of course we know he's a Democrat. He's been annoying the shit out of us (laughs) for years with all of his Democratic nonsense funny and now we're hearing him make these ironic jokes yeah yeah yeah. uh and i think baby boomers and certainly gen x and certainly millennials all just heard here hey something about jews right right, right. sure what a what what a jerk uh and my assumption's always been because i've seen what's the bit i can't remember where it was from but the bit about sammy davis jr i'd like they pick him up and i'd like to thank the naacp for this yeah which is one of my favorite jokes because again it's obvious like they love each other yeah um, but I think it, what isn't obvious maybe is that is it's obviously coming from a place of love, but is the people don't, there's this sort of thing. And I think maybe this is where the disconnect comes from, where is this coming from a place of love because just cause he loves Sammy Davis Jr. Or because as you point out now and make a very good point, it, it's generally just an open-mindedness and a liberal brain. This you know what I mean? is, so it's, it's hard. This is so. totally like if there was a television special with like, Patton Oswalt mm-hmm. and like Chelsea Peretti and like people like mm-hmm. you know are liberal yes. and just for fun they say what Fox News says of course and when you yeah. hear it coming out of their mouth yeah. it sounds like how stupid are these fuckers at Fox News sure that is 100% what it was and if you listen to the the uh, Rat Pack recordings mm-hmm. you can 
it, it it's exciting to me because it was like oh there were cool people like these are mm-hmm. these are wealthy people who grew up you know sort of white liberals following Sinatra mm-hmm. and Sammy Davis Jr. always gets the last laugh yes and he always gets the biggest laugh so they'll say a sort of like ironic dumb racist thing like you know they'll give him the the short stool mm-hmm. and say enjoy sitting at the back of the stage and that'll get a, a laugh mm-hmm. and you know sammy davis jr will say something like go ahead you don't have many rights left right. and then the audience will explode yeah. Yeah. um and that's the same thing too of like understanding the exact line he says about sammy davis jr mm-hmm. in in this thing yeah. in context is he's describing how the sands is going to renovate rooms and they're going to give them the names of the various stars mm-hmm and he says, to show how forward-thinking the Sands is, they're closing Golden Boy for three weeks to bring in Sammy Davis Jr. just to clean. Right. Audience right. laughs, and it sounds like yeah. a joke about, like, oh, black people should clean. Of course. But the context is, Golden Boy was Sammy Davis Jr.'s hit show on Broadway mm-hmm. that wouldn't close because it was too popular. So when you understand what that context is, sure. the joke is clearly... It, it's stupid to take somebody who is so good and so successful that they would have a Broadway show that can't close because it's too popular right. to clean, you know, mm-hmm. then the point of that comes through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's, there's, and uh, now that you point that out, there's this sort of, there's this odd freedom to the things he's allowed to say and talk about, uh, you know, context or without the context, obviously, like you say, it works way better with the context. Yes. Um, but <laughs> there, there are things where he gets to, that's kind of a, let's see, I'm just trying to think. For for lack of a, I, I, I'm trying to think of how to describe it, but comedians had an act. Whereas he, if he wanted to be a little political, it, I feel like he didn't have to veil it as much. And he had a little more freedom to be, if he was going to be funny in his 12 minutes, he got to poke fun. He got to genu- genuinely actually say something in those 12 minutes. Whereas a lot of comedians at the time, they had their act and they had their act. They yeah. weren't going to risk it. Yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? and Sinatra had always uh, been risking it. I mean, this was his sort of the tour, not the tour, but the the uh, engagement at the Sands was his fiftieth birthday right party. You mm-hmm. know, so it was definitely at that point like uh, he's sixty six, so he knew that his style of music was uh, just about done yeah. with the Beatles. Right, uh, and it and it's also like yeah, the sort of the grand old man of entertainment mm-hmm. looking back, which kind of. That's odd to me because in my brain, there, there, I think there's a part of me that still thinks of the '60s is uh, Frank still on top of the world, which obviously was. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the idea that he's 50 and 65 kind of doesn't seem to work in my brain. Yeah. You know, because I and I then to remember back that in the 30s is when he first got his break. You know, and that's yeah. Also 1939 odd. is his first big break, and that he died when I was an adult male. Yeah. <laughs> Just like to have that kind of a, a career. And I, I and I do want. I mean, everybody knows that that Frank Sinatra famously wanted to be an actor, and obviously famously succeeded as an actor, or at least did a lot of great work, yeah. or was in a lot of great things. Uh, but they don't think of him necessarily. Again, they, they think of Dean Martin first, yeah, as the comedian in the group. And I think it's true. And I think like this. And I, you know, when I was going through sort of uh, for trying to come up with some like weird picks because you've done a lot of the classics that that mm-hmm. I liked. Uh, I considered doing like an old Martin and Lewis radio show that sure. I had on vinyl. Um, so I like Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis and find them fascinating, too. And and I don't think, like I said, I don't think Sinatra was a great comedian. Sure. But there's something about that that's cool to me of, like, well, here's, like, 12 minutes on this one mm-hmm. weird album where he's he's doing comedy really, really well. Yeah. Is there any other examples you've heard since of other, maybe even, even more of him, but of other acts at the time or other musicians that take a break or whatever and they just suddenly have a, a moment that's Yeah, kind of... I think comedy is just so much about 
context. And mm-hmm. I think that whenever you hear something mildly funny from someone you do not expect to be funny, sure. yeah. it becomes so much better. And especially if it's something human mm-hmm. and relatable that, you know, and I hadn't thought about it before I came here, but like the sort of the Twitter thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that is a good analogy for like, I, I, I like finding surprise comedy from people who aren't necessarily comedians, but are just mm-hmm. being honest. Okay. That makes uh, sense. Who don't necessarily have like the absolute trained comedy chops mm-hmm. of like a Paul F. Tompkins who's been doing it forever and is, right. you know, uh, but just kind of fall into accidental comedy because of the context of who they are and when and where they're saying it. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And that's different too than the, the sort of people like to give Justin Timberlake a lot of shit for people thinking he's super funny when it's, again, it's because he's a great musician and yeah. people don't expect him to be funny at all. He can be a little funny and it seems like he's amazing. But what you're talking about, like you said, is the honesty thing. And that's, that's yeah. an interesting perspective people don't talk about. Yeah. Look, one tweet that just really, really killed me. Uh, mm-hmm. and I follow a bunch of hilarious people, mm-hmm. um, who are working at being funny. Mm-hmm. But I, I think we're living in a sort of, I see what you did there culture mm-hmm. where people are constantly poking at it. So yes. if you know that someone is trying to be funny, it, makes the bar it raises the bar Mm -hmm. uh but shatner had a tweet the other day and it's funny partially just because it's shatner and we have all this baggage Mm -hmm. and shatner and sinatra are similar in that sort of like grand old man and they have all of this baggage some good some bad Mm -hmm. but they're just their presences you know yeah um and he's been live tweeting a lot of television shows and that just amuses me that like growing up i never thought that Captain Kirk would ruin a show about Green Arrow for me. <laughs> Does he because watch that every week? He live tweets Arrow every week. That's amazing. Uh, and now he started live tweeting the Flash, I think. But but he was answering questions, and somebody had asked him, like, outside of Flash and Arrow, what is the next superhero you want to see? Mm-hmm. And his answer was, one with a shirt on. <laughs> Which is sort of like, it's, it reminds me of these jokes from Sinatra. Yeah. Like, it's a solid joke, yeah. but it's not the most clever, most brilliant thing. Mm-hmm. But who it's coming from in the context in which it's shared mm-hmm. makes it give it that surprise and that pop yeah. that makes it really funny and I like I don't laugh out loud at Twitter that much sure and I laughed out loud at a long, for a long time at I want to see a superhero with a shirt on they've developed I understand some marvelous uh, decor in the suites up there and now uh, Jack tells me they're going to have plaques put on some of the doors for instance the Danny Thomas suite just to kind of glamorize a little bit Red Skelton suite and the one for Dean he decorated himself it's just gutter to gutter there's no furniture in it <laughs> Just straight across the room. He likes it that way, folks. You see, Mr. Martin falls in the street a lot. You're not too sure, so don't, don't get mixed up in it, folks. The question most asked of me is, does Dean Martin really drink? Well, I can attest to that fact. He's a drunk. He is an absolutely unqualified drunk. And if we ever develop an Olympic drinking team, he's going to be the coach. With Toots Shaw and Jackie Gleason involved and me bringing up the rear end. I would say roughly that Dean Martin has been stoned more often in the United States embassies. I'm not too sure whether you applauded for Dean or we should stone some more embassies. I don't know about this group here, you know. You also just imagine, you know, Shatner just sitting there watching TV and, like, yelling at Arrow, like, (laughs) come on, put a shirt on. (laughs) And it does then, of course, beg the question, what the hell would have Sinatra been like if he decided to take the time to do Twitter? Not that the man ever seemed to have a minute to himself. I I have to assume that... 
that was a guy who just didn't do anything he didn't want to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I well, I think he would have been. I mean, he he is also sort of uncredited for some of the breaking down of what uh, of how we relate to stars. Mm-hmm. So he had his first big bout of fame uh, with Capitol Records mm-hmm. and being in musicals in the '40s. And then part of the reason that his career fell apart was music stuff. But also, uh, he was having this affair with Ava Gardner and okay. got divorced. And you didn't get no right. divorced. And you and then and people tried to like contain that he was going out with lots of starlets, sure. which everyone was at mm-hmm. that time. I mean, Jerry Lewis was having lots of sex with incredibly beautiful, successful women. Mm-hmm. That that shouldn't have happened by any normal human standards. <laughs> right, uh, but. And, you know, that the, the sort of the image that Sinatra came to inhabit of the hard-drinking guy who has a lot of lovers in his life, and but only one that he truly loves, and he's kind of heartbroken, and mm. all of the things that sort of, uh, we associate that sort of um, construction of personality that is based in truth. Mm-hmm. So he totally crashed and burned, uh, and everybody thought he was just done. Yeah. Uh, and he had some musical success, had the big comeback in From Here to Eternity, mm-hmm. the, the film. But marketing-wise, he kind of went to his people and just said, uh, let's own it. Yeah. And that was unheard of. Right. Uh, so then in the Capital era, uh, he started having, in the 50s, he started appearing on the albums with a shot of whiskey mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. you know, in, you know, owning that. So I feel like, if he was around in the era of Twitter, he probably would have been one of the first out there. That's true. To yeah. be pe- people would be tweeting back at him, was like, "Will you shut up about Franklin Delano Roosevelt? We know your politics. Just right. sing your songs." <laughs> That's a really good point. Uh, boy, just and I feel like if it wasn't for exactly what you're talking about, this kind of heavy PR shift, there wouldn't be those people. Uh, like yourself at the time, discovering the Rat Pack, who weren't aware of these guys as like uh, th- th- that was it. That's a thing. That's what people really like to latch on to. Sometimes for the wrong reasons. Yeah. The same people. Same reason people love Scarface for the wrong reasons, <laughs> or Wall Street for the wrong fucking yeah. reasons. Sometimes they latch onto Rat Pack for that image without delving deep into it. But yeah. it seems like, but you had that surface interpretation of it, and then all of a sudden you get into this this twelve minutes, and you've got an even deeper understanding of who the guy is. Yeah, yeah, and I, I you know, I. He's certainly like like many people who are big complex characters. He's he obviously did plenty of questionable shit, sure. and, and uh, some of the jokes do even with the context come off as racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I feel like he was more important and more sort of in line with a lot of our current liberal thought and my liberal sure. thoughts sure. Uh, sure. and liberal opinions. And, and it's a bummer to me that that gets lost yeah because uh, he did a lot of really really cool things and a lot of dangerous things like he mm-hmm. took actual risks with his career mm-hmm. which is why i think you know thinking of him on twitter would be fascinating uh, and you know it, it actually kind of it it brings to mind a comedian who i think is given uh, i mean he's not personally given a lot of shit but his own pro jack benny's radio show for having rochester on that show mm-hmm. That's a super upsetting portrayal. Rochester's a very upsetting portrayal. Yes. However, if you know how much Jack Benny fought to have that guy on the show and to keep him around and give him a career, yeah, uh, you kind of think, well, you know what? 
let's we can sacrifice uh, some sensitive portrayal for the fact that he's actually kind of a champion for at least a little sliver of civil rights. Yeah, you know, and people do forget that, and it's it's important to understand that that somebody like this who can. I think people perceive Sinatra as a thug, you either, you know, and then that becomes a problem. It becomes a real yeah. problem because of his, we'll just say, supposed ties to the mafia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> well, they, yeah, they're, they're not supposed. No. They're, I mean, they, yeah. they, but the in, but the other context of that is you didn't work in entertainment mm-hmm. without meeting those people. There of course, are great oh, stories of course. about Jerry Lewis's you know, relationship uh, with the mafia. Uh, Jerry, let's see that hurts my brain yeah right because we don't associate like you know sinatra had at times and i think projected it even later that sort of like i'm big swinging tough guy Mm -hmm. uh as well as a sensitive artist and a big swinging tough guy (laughs) uh so it makes sense that he would want to uh be like okay yeah i do know people who could kill you fine yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) uh unlike jerry lewis he's like yeah a screaming idiot Mm -hmm. um but there's a great jerry lewis story um where, you know, the early club shows of Martin and Lewis were just insane, and that's why they're popular. They just they just literally broke shit, which is, <laughs> you know, it, obviously anybody listening to this is a fan of comedy. Comedy is about breaking things, right. setting something up and breaking it, and Jerry Lewis is just like, well, I think the logical extension of that is to just literally grab a plate from a waiter and smash it. Oh, and at the time, it is. It's shocking and interesting. Ah, so pretty was, punk. Uh, and there was a show where there was some dude at the front of the stage who was talking to somebody. Mm-hmm. And Jerry Lewis smacked him in the shoulder and screamed, Hey, buddy, the show's up here. <laughs> and the guy said, Get your hand off me or I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> and it, it turns out he is some like well-known, I can't remember his name right now, but mm-hmm. he's like some well-known enforcer who had killed many, many people. No. And Dean Martin was like, Oh, Jerry. And like, had to bring Jerry Lewis <laughs> to him backstage afterwards. And was like, apologize to mr so-and-so uh-huh. because he really will kill you he doesn't yeah. care Woof. yeah uh so there there is also that sort of that smash up of worlds that people kind of knew about uh mm-hmm. but I don't, I don't think they knew kind of how just utterly entwined the mafia and entertainment was if you were coming up through the nightclubs at all yeah 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 um so like we said at the time you said you were you're kind of dis- disenchanted with stand-up did this, was this like a, like, kind of a moment for you where you thought about it again, or was it just like a slow evolution where you... It was a slow evolution for me. Um, my brother and I had a late night variety show, mm-hmm. and kind of in the mood, we were really influenced by that sort of Rat Pack vibe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cool thing about a Rat Pack show, if you like any of that entertainment, is they all, they each do their set, and they joke around a little bit, but then also they'll just do like a killer, amazing song live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then at the end, it's just kind of anything goes, screw around. Mm-hmm. And I have always really liked that that mix of aesthetic of, at the top of the show, I'm going to show you that I can be precision and polish yeah. and all of those things that you expect from a great live entertainer, and then sort of buy the audience permission to screw around. Yeah. Because now you know that I'm good. Now you know that we like each other. Right. Now we can just sort of have fun. Um, so the Sinatra of the Sands album really helped us sort of incorporate that idea into this monthly late night comedy variety show okay. that we were doing. Um, and slowly over time I, I came to stand up. Yeah. What, uh, do you, I mean, is there any particular inspiration other than just the feeling of this whole thing? To uh, you? from, 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 from this from, track, I mean, I think that the mix of content that was covered, mm-hmm. uh, 
certainly as a young performer some of the audience ad-libs okay uh so he's got a, a a bunch of the kind of like that joke landed okay so i've got this sort of follow-up joke that kind of acknowledges it okay yeah. that was like a learning thing yeah. for me because i had been coming to it from sort of sketch and mm-hmm. theater which is sort of like you present your material and the audience <laughs> likes it or do not right they do not but the idea of like ah that one only landed okay uh so i'm gonna kind of yell at the audience for it uh-huh. or, or make a meta joke right uh yeah and there was an, a joke that it was like it seemed like maybe the audience didn't get so he's like i'm not too sure about this crowd and like mm-hmm. again not a brilliant joke but it was new to me right uh there's a there's a and then just sort of audience commentary one of the things that really made me laugh at the time clearly someone is getting up in this packed room to go to the bathroom <laughs> and he says the way you're walking buddy eight to five you're not gonna make it on time <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, you know again on these levels of comedy you know sort of sinatra with the luck be a lady tonight attitude sure. and he's got this in sort of you know, number format, yeah, yeah, yeah. the odds that he'll be able to make it to the bathroom on time. Mm-hmm. But that was certainly new to me in that idea of if you really have the audience in the palm of your hand and if you're feeling confident, you can, you know, break away from your material and acknowledge the reality of what's going on in the room. Right. So I think that was like that specific line was a, a teaching moment. <laughs> and uh, also, uh, uh, when we finished the first phase of the, uh, which is damn near complete now, the second phase is redoing this Copa room here. Larger stage, more capacity. And Mr. Entrada, to show you the class of the thinking of this hotel, they're closing Golden Boy to bring Sammy Davis in here for four solid weeks just to clean. I saw Sammy's first television show. I'd like to make one comment on that show. There's a lot I can make, but I want to make one comment on this show. Sammy Davis wrote a book called Yes, I Can. And when I saw that show, I sent him a wire and said, No, you can't. Now, that's one thing too you don't think about is is crowd work and crowd work can be a really tough skill to learn yeah and i love crowd work okay. and I, I you know i and i think it comes from things like this album if not specifically this album certainly things like it hearing really uh accomplished confident entertainers mm-hmm. feel like it's not a scary thing to talk to the audience yeah uh in and when i had started doing comedy a lot of the people that i was doing it with we're really unsure about crowd work of mm-hmm. like that is there is I think for young comedians there can be an assumption that the audience is going to hate you it's mm-hmm. so like why talk to the people who are going to hate you right right <laughs> uh and for me I, I love crowd work uh because it strips away any of that sort of I see what you did there attitude mm-hmm. because everything is now for sure it is absolutely real and absolutely in the moment mm-hmm. uh, and I love that in comedy it makes me think, and I, I don't know if there's any way to know, like, how much that 12 minutes evolved, how much of that was in. Obviously, some of them are prepared jokes. Obviously, obviously some of these he's told before. But I, I yeah. do wonder, like, night to night, how that might have differed. Or I don't know how many nights this, do you know how many nights this album was cut up from? Does it say anywhere? Uh, like, this was I don't think so. I'm sure that monologue is cut up from a couple different ones. But mm-hmm. it's cut really well. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's unnoticeable where the cuts might be. But yeah. Uh, and I do have one different version of of that that uh, stand at the oh okay at the sands, and I only listened to it once because I knew this one so well. Mm-hmm. It was a little like uncanny valley mm-hmm. to listen to 
the other version that yeah. had some like slightly different jokes Interesting. and some slightly different laughs and a couple jokes that didn't quite go mm-hmm. well. Uh, and I should now, now that I'm doing this, I should go back and listen to it. But at the time it was just sort of like, it was a little too creepy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, that makes sense. To know it so well and then see this slight, hear this slightly different version. So uh, what that's interesting, too, is you were talking about, uh, you know, you picked up some Sinatra, but you specifically picked this up because somebody told you that this bit was on here? Yeah. And what what was their interest in it? Were they a comedian? And was it just like, were they just like, you should hear this because it's super funny? No, absolutely proto-hipster. Okay. Of, oh, okay, I'm right. riding the fence of, I kind of like Sinatra's music, but it's also sort of like, I like it because it's stupid mm-hmm. but it's cool too like and it's sort of like that that unwillingness to decide which is it do you actually like it right or do you like it ironically because you feel it is stupid mm-hmm. uh and it yeah and there's a person like that who who recommended it um yeah yeah and i should say the part of another thing that i came to it is i i like making uh jokes about booze uh i'm not a super booze hound Mm -hmm. in in reality i have been sure at different points in my life but not now Mm -hmm. but uh, i like that reality too so the tea break the reason it's called the tea break Mm -hmm. is he he had this bit where he actually did have a teacup and saucer Mm -hmm. that was full of jack daniels (laughs) so it had that contrast of like elite proper drinking right but slugging bourbon Mm -hmm. uh and as as uh, I got more confident as a performer, I really like bringing booze on to the stage. Okay, uh, because it has a sort of I, I think it is still in this day and age a way to communicate like this is a show, and yes, I will take it seriously. But I'm it's also the point of the show is fun and looseness. Sure. Uh, and I, some people are still uptight about booze on stage, and right. some people always say like, "Well, Dean and Frank never actually had booze." And, right. Well, no, those people are full of shit. They had booze. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting too because I I don't think I've ever had a stand up come on who's talked about um, anything else beyond just the performance, beyond uh, talking to the crowd, but like that you specifically have a thing that you might actually bring on the stage, and I. I'm not going to call it prop comedy, but you understand, <laughs> you understand that, that yeah. that's an unusual thing to do that people don't ever talk about because people just, I've got my bottle of water. It's something that people won't notice. But to bring on something that people are going to notice outside of just the act is is an interesting move. Yeah. And uh, it feels risky. Am I wrong? It feels uh, risky. It doesn't feel risky to me because okay. I, I have had a weirdo comedy career and I came to stand up through uh, theater and sketch. Mm-hmm. It was always comedy, um, but and improv uh, but so to me, bringing a prop, well, you know, it feels pretty light instead of having okay. a whole set in a costume change sure. to have <laughs> one prop. Mm-hmm. I think uh, depending on where you are, having booze on stage can sometimes make people uptight. Sure. But I kind of feel like for the most part, if you're going to be at a comedy show, as long as somebody is actually still delivering good comedy, mm-hmm. you know, and not becoming a complete shit-faced mess. For sure. Uh, well, that that can be funny in its own it way too, be. but that's can't be. <laughs> <laughs> even more subtleties. Uh, it, well, it makes me think then. Like, uh, uh, are you a fan of how, how prepared do you like to be on any given night when you perform, or do you like the free flow? I'm curious because you know there's a mix of that in the Sinatra thing, but mm-hmm. then to to bring something out that can break the tension or break can break it up. And I don't, and I don't mean to just concentrate on the fact that you sometimes bring out alcohol. Oh, please! Uh, you know, but we it, can do it, a whole it, podcast about that. That'd be fun. It's interesting to me. It feels like you would have to have a very tight set, and that you might be very specific about how you tell your jokes in order to willingly bring that out. Or will you bring that out on any given night? I'm curious. Oh, I would bring I would bring one beer out 
or one martini out to just about anything. Okay. Uh, and part of that is I have been doing it for so long. I've done bits where it is ba- where we basically uh, have set up like it's okay if we get drunk now. That's the point, and everybody in the at the show has bought into it. Mm-hmm. And okay. I think a lot of things are about knowing your audience and sort of yeah. audience expectations. Like, what do they come in expecting? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I have been sort of with audience permission, just totally drunk on stage to the point where uh, I have said things like, I really shouldn't have said that. <laughs> it was well delivered. It was crisp. But that was not the choice of thing <laughs> that I should have said. Yeah. Uh, so, I... Yeah, so it doesn't feel like a risk for me because I feel like I've taken it to its logical extension of being like, with an audience's permission, they know what they're going to see. I've been yeah. totally drunk on stage. Yeah. Um, but I feel like it is, to me, it's sort of the epitome of what really good comedy and really good stand-up should be, mm-hmm. which is being utterly precise and also being able to suddenly jump out of your precision, yeah. be totally honest, and say something utterly unplanned, and jump back to the precision. Yeah. So you know, the ability to be able to go off script is mm-hmm. just another kind of precision to me. For, for sure, yeah. Where does that come from? Does that come from improv training, or a mix of different things, or theater training? Uh, I think it comes. Uh, certainly comes from improv. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think for me, it just comes from what feels good on stage. You know, I've been performing comedy for a long time and and what feels really great is that feeling of, I know that right now things are going well and I feel utterly confident jumping off this cliff. Mm -hmm. I have no idea how I'm going to land. Yeah. But I will figure it out. And that feeling in that moment when you're like, yeah, I don't care. I trust myself. I trust the audience. Mm -hmm. This will go fine. Yeah. Is, uh, you know, that's the most fun you can have on stage for me that moment. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, so, all right, well, let's let's skip back before this album. Did you were you did you collect comedy albums? Do you now? Uh, what was the first comedy album you ever listened to, if you can recall? Uh, probably the, one of the first like just straight stand up albums I heard was Eddie Murphy's Delirious. Okay, and there was a lot uh, <laughs> talk about problematic <laughs> material. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, yep. <laughs> but there is a lot of it that is hilarious, and mm-hmm. uh, it is you know hilarious in the context of its time. Yeah. Um, I had Weird Al albums that I really liked. Mm -hmm. Um, I never, I have never really collected comedy. I've sort of found it in different places Mm -hmm. and enjoyed it. Saturday Night Live was a huge influence. Is I think another reason that I sort of started out going towards sketch. Mm -hmm. Um, but I always, I always think of finding comedy in like weird places too. Uh Like we had a, a He-Man album that was like a read the book, listen to the audio uh-huh. And it was just so bizarrely voice acted that, like, when I think of like, what were my favorite comedy albums? Like, well, I laughed at Skeletor probably uh-huh. <laughs> the yeah. most of any of my albums. I uh, can see that. Yeah, and uh, and I'm uh, you know listening uh, to your podcast a little bit. Uh, there are definitely a few spots of like sort of really classic comedy that I've missed that mm-hmm. I want to go back and really really listen to. Listen, I'll, I'll hold it up till you get back if you want, buddy. I'll just, I'll kind of linger a little bit. The way you're walking, eight to five, you don't get there in time. He's walking sideways like this.
Well, that was just a small summation of my career, which is very dull. And I must say, I, I had a marvelous time in this career of mine up till now, and I don't plan to stop either, by the way. I mean, having a marvelous time. Because, thank you. I must say seriously that what with the, the enthusiastic followings that have followed through the years, all the way up to now, the buying of records, the watching of television shows and seeing the movies, that's all important to me, and it's all gratifying to me as far as you are all concerned. Now, I'm not trying to get hokey about this, but it's true. That's what helps make it a good career. Now, I don't care where you go. That's the dullest speech you're ever going to hear the rest of your life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Were you introduced your first comedy to your, your parents, or was it a thing where you branch off and you had a friend who introduced you to your first kind of comedy? Because some people don't have... Their just parents are not into comedy. I, I, I hear that every once in a while. Uh, yeah, curious. no, my parents had, uh, had and have... Uh, <laughs> they're still alive. Uh, have a really good sense of humor. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just sort of brought up around the, like... It's fun to laugh. I mean, they introduced me to Saturday Night Live awesome. um, because, like, they had told me to go to bed because they were going to watch something adult, and I snuck out and watched Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, as, as I got older, it became a family thing that we watched Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, you know, and it was very, very rare that something on Saturday Night Live was, like, too far and not right. okay with them. Um, so I don't feel like I have that moment where I was introduced to comedy. I more have these sort of, like, moments where, like, oh, that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's the kind of comedy I want to do. Oh, that I want to play yeah. that kind of comedy. Um, I listened to a decent amount of Steve Martin, and I think Steve Martin's another like really big influence on me because mm-hmm. um, I think he so much of his comedy is sort of like that uh, that teacup with bourbon in it. Mm-hmm. Like Steve Martin to me is kind of a teacup with bourbon in it of yeah. being sort of having that erudite presence, so that anything like really ridiculous or silly or inappropriate has such nice sharp contrast right. to this sort of man who's standing up very straight mm-hmm. and speaking very clearly and saying what he thinks uh-huh. about poo. You know, right. That, right. And it makes something as simple as poo surprising and fun, yeah. you know. Uh, and I like I like really sharp contrast in comedy. Do you feel like when you're performing does because you earlier you're talking about there, there becomes that moment uh, where eventually if you get good enough or you do it enough, you have that kind of freedom to just jump out of your own material do you think that's does it work for everybody and is it a thing that you earn like that freedom to just to feel the stage and walk the stage how you how you want to and experiment is that something you have to earn uh, i i uh, yes but i think sometimes earning it can be as quick as 30 seconds yeah okay <laughs> uh i for me my big thing about comedy uh live comedy performance is about knowing your audience Mm -hmm. uh and i think just like every joke has a a setup Mm -hmm. sort of like the what makes an audience accept your jokes or not is where they're coming from how are they hearing them Mm -hmm. um and i think that can be like demographics like age that Mm -hmm. can be like literal reference are they big star wars fans sure will they know what han shot first means or is Mm -hmm. that utterly obscure to them right uh are you the first comic on a bill of 18 are you the last you know like did they just eat all of those things that sort of color i always tried to see myself through that audience's eyes Mm -hmm. that night so i think because of that context i feel like i always have to earn the sort of the right to play yeah uh but then at the same time i feel like uh when you can't really know what the audience is going to be ahead of time and you can't figure them out ahead of time Mm -hmm. 
uh, one of the best and most honest ways to do that is to do crowd work. Yeah. To just actually yeah. ask them, you know, uh, how many people are dating. Right. And then right. you really get, you know, I've been I've been doing some bits about dating a lot. And it's really random, you know, mm-hmm. around town when it's a big dating crowd and not. Okay. And who wants to admit it? Uh, yeah. And a couple times, there was a sh- like there was a show I did. I asked if they were dating, mm-hmm. and it was. Uh, and then I asked, and a lot of people applied. And then I asked if anyone was single and really wanted to be dating. Mm-hmm. And then just like two weirdos in the back applauded and it was like really loud applauding so then it created the picture in like my mind and also in the audience's mind of like oh there are two people who don't know how to date who are sitting in the back observing other people on dates to figure out how to do it so uh, i think there is there is some earning uh with sort of crowd work and looseness and then there's some times where it's just being honest yeah of like what's going on in the room who are we uh, we're all in this room to do this weird thing. Yeah. Um, and I think any sort of club work, any sort of smaller work is like that. And then you have concert work where sure. everybody already knows who Rob Delaney is. Mm-hmm. They've come to hear Rob Delaney say Rob Delaney things on a stage. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you don't need to have as much sort of figuring it out. Yeah. Because um, you don't think of, I, I guess I don't think of that as much as a to- of a tool as just like... Uh, an art experiment where you get to play, but I don't think of it as a tool, but now you make a perfect argument that sometimes playing is what gets it going. And yeah. That's yeah, interesting. I don't think about it that often. Cause again, somebody like Frank Sinatra, you get, you have this picture. It's like, well, he's always doing what he wants cause he's Frank Sinatra. Yeah. But you know, it doesn't hurt him to feel the room out. It doesn't hurt him to play with the room. Yeah. Cause it might loosen him up. Yeah. Because there are times when people aren't going to be receptive to your music. People aren't going to be singing along. It's, he's not that kind of guy. People yeah. have to listen. They're going to be rapped. Yeah. And sometimes I bet it, I bet it's hard to know if they, they're enjoying themselves unless they clap at the end of the song. Yeah. Whereas you, you don't have a song. <laughs> you know? People are going to be yeah. laughing at a setup. People are sometimes going to be laughing at the wrong point of your joke. Yeah. Some people are just going to be laughing throughout. Sometimes they're going to be dead silent, which I, I sorry, that's why I don't do stand up. I can't imagine. <laughs> I, that, that, that scares the shit out of me. That is, that is, uh, dead silence is, I think, outside of open mics, is mm-hmm. more rare than people think. Yeah. Um, because I, I think most comics are getting a little bit more fluid at being in the moment and mm-hmm. handling sort of lowered you know an audience isn't reacting exactly the way they expect i think a lot of people are just getting really good at rolling with the bunches sure uh, the silent bunches mm-hmm. um but in in terms of that sort of like cockiness and confidence i think that there's also uh, i have like an older sense of like showmanship from mm-hmm. things like sinatra's era and rat pack in that where it's still ladies and gentlemen not you guys <laughs> <laughs> uh and i think in terms of that confidence that's there in this uh tea break monologue mm-hmm. the last two things he says are both giving the power back to the audience yeah uh because first he thanks them for seeing all of his movies yeah. and records and giving him his career uh it's not exactly how he phrases it but mm-hmm. he basically says you're the ones who make it fun you're the ones who make it possible mm-hmm uh, and then he says, and again, this is just a kind of set up, knock down joke. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't care where you go or what you hear. That's the dullest speech you'll ever hear. <laughs> like, again, just kind of like easy set up, knock down joke. Mm-hmm. But it's also sort of downplaying, you know, he's not, he doesn't have an attitude of like, hi, yes, I'm celebrating my 50th birthday and I'm one of the most powerful and influential human beings <laughs> on the planet. Yeah. 
uh, I used my mafia collections to get our president elected <laughs> right. before he got shot, uh, and that was that was me. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't have that attitude. He has yeah. that sort of like, with your kind permission, ladies and gentlemen, mm-hmm. I would like to offer you some humor. You know. Yeah, yeah, and that so always works. Yeah, there's some deference. Yeah, boy. Um, let me just make sure real quick. Oh, we're actually doing okay. What? The... Oops, sorry. One second. I'm gonna pause mm-hmm. it. Uh, okay, so now that we're towards the end. Uh, I like to ask, you've summed it up, but I do like to ask people if you can, if they've never heard, if you, if the people out there listening have never heard this album, they're going to be listening to a lot of music and that's fine. But what's a good reason to pick this album up? Is it worth picking up the album just to hear this 12 minutes? I think if you're a total comedy dork, Mm -hmm. it is worth picking it up because I think it, in, in that proto hipster way, it is both genuinely funny and there's a lot of meta humor from our uh, modern perspective. Mm-hmm. There's some great music. Uh, it, it's the Count Basie band, uh, arranged and conducted by a young Quincy Jones. Yeah. The music is good, if you like that kind of music at mm-hmm. all. It's really good. Uh, the liner notes on the actual vinyl, if mm-hmm. you go buy the vinyl, the liner notes won a Grammy, which I don't know, if, I don't <laughs> think they give Grammy what? <laughs> Grammys for liner notes anymore. Wow. Uh, in, if you're interested in sort of deep meta comedy, you can look this guy up. His name is Stan Cornyn. Uh-huh. Uh, and he wrote the basically sort of like long mood pieces uh-huh. uh, on a lot of the later Sinatra and Dean Martin albums on mm-hmm. the reprise record label that Sinatra owned. Uh, and there's some really, really funny stuff in That's there. That's interesting. Uh, it talks about... Uh, it starts off talking about how, you know, Sinatra shouldn't have anything to be nervous about, but he's right. still peeking out at the audience. And uh, this uh, is a big night for him, and he's been preparing. And one of the ways that, he, according to the liner notes, he prepares is he lays off cigarettes for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> so there's some stuff that's, like, very, very funny from a modern context. And it's also very, it is very tongue-in-cheek for the time, the liner notes. It's supposed to be kind of poking fun at the image that's so odd. Of Sinatra as Entertainment King. And that's one of the things we talk about on this podcast all the time is sort of the experience of having the thing in your hand. And this is, this sounds, that's a perfect argument to me. Yeah. Is to have this extra little thing that you wouldn't get if you bought the CD. Or yeah. especially if you downloaded it on iTunes. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, well, where can people find you? What should people look out for? Uh, this episode is going to come out in three or four weeks. It's going to be a bit of delay, but okay. is there anything coming up that people should be aware of? Uh, I am in April. I'm going on a West Coast tour with uh, my friends, the Double Clicks, who are oh. a very popular indie uh, band. Mm-hmm. And so we're doing it, it's sort of like Modern Rat Pack. It's a comedy variety show with they do music. I do some stand up at the end of the show. Uh, we kind of screw around a little That's bit awesome. and do some improvised stuff. That's amazing. Uh, so that will be uh, in uh, mid April. Mm-hmm. Uh, tickets should be on sale. Uh, you can find me on my website at josephscrimshaw.com mm-hmm. and uh, pretty much every social media site. <laughs> mm-hmm. But Twitter is my favorite, so you can find me there at Joseph Scrimshaw, is my handle and shows around LA all the time. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. This is great fun. This is a lot of fun. Guys, please listen to this. It, it, you know, I, I had to listen to it on Spotify, so if you want to just listen to the damn thing, go on Spotify and listen to Track 9 on, on Sinatra at the Sands, because it, it is fantastic. Um, well, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening, and as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. 
It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. Please visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, read our blogs, read our tweets, watch our videos, and read our books. Please subscribe on iTunes, and if you like us, give us a five-star rating and a nice review. You can find us on Facebook.com slash Comedy on Vinyl, Twitter at Comedy on Vinyl, and find everything else at ComedyOnVinyl.com.